What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Setting Stages with Eddie Mack. I am your host, Eddie Macaranis. And uh, today's episode, man, um, so here's the interesting thing. I recorded this episode, and the guest who is featured on today's episode, he and I have been friends, first of all, for uh, several years. But this episode was actually recorded nearly a year ago. I want to say that it was about April or May of 2019 that we sat down in his living room or his dining room. Um, and we were just, we, we, I wanted to talk to him um, and, and share the story of his because uh, he, he's turned around um, his life in, in such incredible fashion, um, a complete 180 from where he was at one point in his life to where he is now. And albeit that we recorded this one year ago, but um, his life since this recording, and, and actually, in fact, before that, has been, um, you know, consistently in a good place. And I'm incredibly proud to share the story that he's got to share today with you all. And now, the reason why it took so long for us to air this thing is because, first of all, he he and I um, had discussions over the phone before we even sat down to record this, and the things that he shared with me over the phone were pretty heavy. The topics were uh, very personal, and I wanted to be cautious and respectful for his... Um, for one, his privacy. Uh, for two, I, I didn't want him to feel that the message that this episode's intention uh, is, I didn't want that message to be misconstrued for, um, you know, fast times, uh, troublesome, troublesome situations, and, and that was it, like just, just dark and, and negative topics. Um, the, the, the point of his story and the reason why I'm even sharing it is because I I wanted, and I wanted to ensure that he was comfortable with sharing very hard times to to reflect exactly how positive of a life he has created from what was such a negative experience for so many years of his life. So the hesitation is that after he reassessed the episode and listened to it, Shortly after, maybe a week or two or something like that, or he must have just reflected back on it. He called me and he said, you know, Eddie, I, I don't think I really want to share that episode. I just felt like when the mics were hot, the cameras in our face, I recorded a video of it, um, and the lights were on. It just like I, he felt like he was on the spot and, and maybe didn't articulate in complete detail, some of the things that he wanted to share. And, um, yeah, so I, I respected that and I decided, you know what, I'm not going to share it. I'm not going to air it and, uh, we'll leave it at that. And so I, I, I let him know like, Hey, this is your episode. And, and because of the sensitivity and the, and the, the highly taboo topics that are discussed in this episode, I didn't want to just push that out there and exploit the situation. Well, um, you know, like I said, it's been a year and I'm kind of perusing through and editing some other episodes that I, that I plan to air and everything. And I looked back at this one and I just thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to give this one a listen and see exactly what Jeff is talking about. And that's his, that's his name, by the way. And, um, you know, after listening to it, man, it still hits home. It still hits, it, it still hits the mark of, uh, the message that, Number one, he was hoping to accomplish, which is 
how he turned his life around and how that message can inspire others to find hope within themselves and surround themselves by the right people. And you'll learn a little bit more about that when you listen to this episode. Um, but he, he did want to share, you know, deeper, more elaborate details of the hard times. But after listening to it again, I feel like the tone and the depth and that darkness that I talked about is still very much present, despite maybe some details being left out on his behalf. Um, and then where he is now, um, and he'll explain that to you on the other on the end half of this episode of exactly how he got there and, and what it took for him to turn around and, and and where he stands. So I won't I won't take away from his explanation. He explains it so well. Uh, but anyways, I just wanted to give you guys a little spiel about where this episode comes from, um, and and it's kind of left field uh, from the tone and feeling that most of my other episodes are like. Uh, I encourage you that if you. Uh, find that this is something that resonates with your with you or this episode resonates with somebody or you think that it would resonate with somebody that you know in your life, I very, very, very much encourage you to share this. This isn't like my normal share it with your friends so that we can, you know, gain a larger audience. Mm-mm. This is definitely more of a share it because it is such an empowering story of tragedy or what could have been tragedy, and truly what has become a triumph. And I'm incredibly proud to, and honored to have this opportunity to share my very close friend's story of exactly how he got out of what could have been tragedy and came out victorious in what is not even the end. Uh, So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome to the stage, as my kids call him, Uncle Jeff. Let's go. Jeff, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. This is uh, this is gonna be a totally different kind of podcast that I've ever recorded. Um, I, before we actually got to meet, you and I talked over the phone, and I said that this is possibly the most important episode that I ever record. I don't mean to put that much pressure on you, <laughs> but you've got a story that um, really runs heavy. I know that um, it's a real personal one, so I appreciate your vulnerability and um, being flexible with what you share. Yeah, sure. Um, but this is your show, man. So I know that we have some guiding questions that I'm going to toss your way and answer as you will. And if there's any time that you need to cut, let's cut. If there's anything that we need to leave out, we'll leave out and we'll talk about it. Roger that. Fair? Yeah. Um, before we get all crazy with, um, you know, what you have to share, just tell me a little bit about Jeff. Like, what are you into? What are your passions, interests right now? Right now? Yeah. At this point in my life? I think at this point in my life, my main focus is uh, my family, my mm. friends, uh, the future, looking up towards things. I mean, uh, it's changed through the course of my life, but I think things that I thought were important when I was a kid don't really matter anymore. And now it's more about relationships, building those relationships, cultivating them, uh, I spend a lot of time, make a lot of effort to reach out to friends, even old friends from the past. And whether they are reciprocating or not, I, I do what I can to just make sure that they know I'm here. And 
uh, if they if they're ready to reach out, uh, people get busy. I understand how life goes, but uh, you know I focus on hanging out with my family, hanging out with my friends, spending time on um, on life rather than work. I dig that, yeah, and respect that a lot. You talk about friends that you reach out to, you just kind of check in on them, or for at least for them to know that you're still here for them. You're talking about friends from like your childhood past as well. Yeah, of yeah. course. I mean, I'm almost 40 now, and uh, the relationships that I had when I was in my late teenage years and uh, my early 20s, that was an important time for me. For sure. It, uh, it helped build my character, and it changed who I have become. So those relationships are important to me, and I, I try to keep in touch with people. You know, always circle back, make sure they know I'm here. Yeah. So uh, in that aspect, there's a lot of things, obviously, that stress people on a daily life. But I, I think for me, the most important thing is is family and friends, for sure. Hell yeah. Good. And I know that, like, me and you and I are in the same age range. And I feel like I've learned that a little bit later than I wanted to. I think yeah. I think I wasn't, maybe I wasn't ready to understand or accept the fact that it's not all about me and the fun and like fast times, but the relationships and how I cultivate them and the connection that I maintain with them sounds like that's kind of where you're at right now too. Absolutely. Legit. The, um, these friends of yours, I mean, you talk about childhood friends and how long you've had, um, these friendships. What was it like being childhood Jeff? Childhood Jeff was pretty awesome actually. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I was a kid, I grew up in the East Bay area, a little town called Antioch along the Delta, which is pretty much just like where the San Joaquin River and Sacramento River kind of merge, and you could take that all the way out to the ocean. Um, Had a great family. My parents were were amazing. Got an older brother, two older sisters. Um, I spent a lot of time as a kid working on my BMX bike wake up on a Saturday morning, throw a shovel over my back and uh, ride up to a couple of undeveloped areas in the neighborhood and just build bike uh, jumps and and hit them all day, fall, get scratched up, and get back up again. Um, (laughs) Did you ever film that? No, I mean, dude, there weren't even beepers at the time. So So you couldn't bring the camcorder uh, with the big-ass VHS tape inside it? No, I think, if anything, I might have been able to get a Polaroid or two, but... um, no, but it was it was great being a kid, man. I, I loved it. Um, it's been so long now. You 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 know you remember the good stuff, but um, a lot of baseball. My 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 dad was a great teacher to me, a great mentor. He taught me how to play golf and uh, and baseball. We spent a lot of time together. It was something that built a relationship with my brother and I. So uh, always liked to swim. Always liked to be outside. Cool. I always like the sun, get my freckles on, my summer skin. Um, and it was, a great, it was a great place to grow up. It was a great place to grow up. My parents moved out from, uh, you know, Wisconsin. When I, I think I was out here when I was like two. So even though I was born there, uh, been in California my entire life. Yeah, you're a California kid yeah. through and through. California kid. No wonder sure. you were outside so much because yep. in Wisconsin you wouldn't have been doing that. No, no, not at all, man. Not at all. 
What did you want to be when you were little, man? Did you have, like, aspirations to be, like, I don't know, you know how it is, firefighter, astronaut, whatever. Mm. You were a BMXer, apparently. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think I think um, when I was a kid, I mean, we didn't have video games. I, 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 guess, I guess we did. Um, but I spent most of my time outside. I remember wanting to be a pilot, a helicopter mm. pilot for, like, a SWAT team. Or, oh, wow. Or, um, you know... A, a pilot. I, I think the reason behind that was because I wanted to be able to take my mom all around the world. I was into geography. I loved the fact that the world was so big. I remember thinking, even as a kid, what are the chances that that I'm living in this town and the world is so big, and this and, and this is as far as I could go. So. I think that was what I wanted to be as a kid, and and things progressed as I got older, but, you know, I wanted to be a pilot, I wanted to be a scientist, I wanted to go to outer space, you know, whatever, <laughs> anything but what it turned out, you know, um, I wanted to be a lying. wizard, you know. For sure, for sure. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Um, it sounded like a pretty kick-ass childhood though i mean it sounded like the family unit was pretty solid you were given some freedom to just like snag a shovel from the garage and head out to the hills dude it's not like it is today my uh by the time my parents uh got around to me because i'm the youngest kid Mm. they just you know they took the they 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 lowered their guard oh dude i know exactly what you're talking about i had pretty much free reign on uh on growing up god that kills me man because i'm the oldest of my of my of my siblings and i only got a little brother drew um god he had it easy man oh yeah they always do man (laughs) always do i uh i i appreciated all the freedom i got you know legit my uh i woke up in the morning made myself some some breakfast and Came back when the streetlights turned on, man. That yeah, was it. Yeah, you know that's cool. I feel like I'm 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 really starting to see that my like my oldest son Dante. He's spending a lot more time outside, which is great because he's gamer like through and through, as a lot of kids are. I know I was mm-hmm. when we. The only thing that was available was a Genesis or a, or a Nintendo. Sega, bro. Sega. Yeah, I was a Nintendo dude, but um. Yeah, I don't know. Gaming is so crazy right now. So it's like we always see my like our children just playing a bunch of video games. But Dante is starting to ride his bike a hell of a lot more. He bought his own scooter like with his own money on Amazon. So of course technology was still involved. But still, you sure. know, like he wants to be outside. No, it's great, man. And he goes out to the hills too. He's actually kind of like right here by your neighborhood when he when he rides out with his homies. Um, <laughs> and he'll like film some stuff on Instagram, and then like. My, I don't know, like my brother-in-law comes over and, and it's like sees that. He's like, dude, did you see the video that your son posted? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, what's he doing in a shopping cart on a dirt road? <laughs> I was like, but he had his helmet on. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Safety first, <laughs> man. Sure. Safety first. But um, that kind of stuff that you don't see, I feel like electronics kind of took us took, takes them away from a lot of that stuff. But um, the way that you and I grew up, man, I loved being outside. It could have been blazing hot, and I'm still hanging out outside with the friends. Yeah, know? yeah, absolutely. Cool. Appreciate the background. So here's the deal. The reason why I brought you on the show, as you know, is because we wanted, I wanted to talk to you and, and share your story about how you overcame drug addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so recount for me, like, what was your first experience like leading up to that, that moment? Well... I think I think what happened for me, and I think what happens for a lot of people is, 
it's it does it does depend on the kind of kids you hang out with. Um, in my neighborhood, there wasn't a whole lot going on um, other than you know you find you find things to keep you occupied, and the kids that grew up in my neighborhood that I became friends with, um, just like every other situation, you find yourself in a, in, in a circle of people and somebody will pull something out um, of their pocket and, and you make that decision. I mean, growing up, listening to Nancy Reagan, I always knew, you know, drugs are bad. I never really considered uh, twisting one up to be bad, but I, I think uh, the first time I ever actually... Um, put anything into my system was was um, in Antioch. I was probably 14, and it was a little bit of bud. And from there, I kind of realized uh, this is something I'm going to enjoy. Yeah. Um, it wasn't boredom necessarily. I think some people, they, they try things, and they realize right away they don't like it. I actually really enjoyed the, the feeling of it, and I enjoyed being a part of a circle. So it wasn't ever a pressure thing for me. Hmm. It was um, no different than when people like to go out and have drinks, and it loosens them up a little bit. They open up. They talk a little bit more about their personal life instead of their day-to-day um, issues at work. Interesting. Know? Because that stuff's not interesting to me. Hmm. Um, it also had a lot to do with the fact that when I was a kid— when I say kid, I mean 14, 15, 16, I started really getting into music. I had a, a passion for it, and a lot of those kids in my neighborhood, um, just like every other generation before us, it, it comes with a little bit of, of um, partying involved. So, you know, it led, it led to drinking, um, at a young age, it led to running into 7-Elevens and running out with a 12-pack of Budweiser, which is the worst beer to, to steal. <laughs> but, um, yeah, things kind of progressed. It's, it's, it's interesting looking back if I could have done things differently. I don't think I would, but that's only because I could say that on the flip side now. I hear you. Um, it helped me build relationships with, with people that are life lasting. I mean, um, a couple of things had happened throughout my childhood. I lost a couple of friends to, uh, suicide. And I think things kind of turned for me, uh, where I, I started hanging out with different kids. And at the time, this was probably 1997, 1998, uh, pharmaceuticals started coming out. Um, they were kind of a big deal, and it turned out the city that I lived in, uh, access to it was pretty easy. You know, you go to a house party, and pretty much anything that that uh, you could imagine was there in somebody's pocket. Yeah. So, you know, it wasn't it wasn't like um, it wasn't like I intended for things to go south, but. From going from being a really happy kid, it kind of transitioned into, okay, I'm going to start on the weekends. All right, now it turns into two or three times a week. And it went from smoking bud to drinking a lot. And then what actually happened um, was an epiphany. The first time I ever got a hand on some opiates, you know, it starts out with a little Vicodin here, a little Percocet there 
some Xanax, this, that, and the other, um, I realized, wow, this is, uh, this is something else. I actually felt like it made me more social. I actually felt like uh, it took some of the anxiety, some of the daily stress of life away. And it's interesting because in the beginning, just like anything else, you get into a routine where you're, you're taking something to kind of fill a void in your life. Mm -hmm. the, problem with, the problem with with my story is uh, I really enjoyed it. You'll talk to people that will go to the dentist and, and uh, have a tooth pulled and they'll get a, a bottle of Vicodin and they'll take one and they'll throw the whole bottle away because they don't like the way it makes them feel. They know it immediately, it's not for them. Uh, for me, it was different. I loved it. I loved it. I loved the way it made me feel. I loved the way it made me think. At the time, I thought uh, I thought I could live my whole life like that. Mm. The problem is, um, like anything else, you build up a tolerance for something and you need more. Uh, and so, you know, by the time by the time uh, I got into my early twenties things had started to really get out of control. Things had really started to get out of control. So you said that this was at about 96, 97, where you had experienced these parties where there was access to all kinds of pharmaceuticals. You talked about escaping the repetition, and you mentioned stress. And I just want, I'm just curious to know, what stress were you enduring at that age? Well, I mean, through that age, everybody's trying to figure out who they are, mm -hmm. you know. Okay. In high school, I was a pimply-faced kid. I was the nerdiest kid. I was the kid everyone wanted to sit by because they wanted to cheat off of my papers, you know. Um, so you were brainy. Well, I, I, I studied. Yeah. I studied. I put the work into it. I was good at mathematics and social studies. I mean, I, I, I had a few subjects that I excelled in, and... I wasn't a good-looking kid, um, but I didn't have any enemies, and I was just kind of there. Uh, I'm, I showed up with a pair of Chuck Taylors on, and I had just blazed in the parking lot, and I went in, and, and I got A's. Yeah, you know? yeah. School, school was—I'm uh, <clears throat> not going to say it was easy, but I put in the work, so I was actually really good um, at school, but— as that progressed, you know, that you, you have this uncomfortable feeling when you're trying to figure out who you are, mm -hmm. what you want to be, sure. um, and the insecurities that go along with being 17, 18, 19. And I think, I think that uh, using medication, as I like to call it, or whatever it was, kind of helped me progress into adulthood. At least that's what I, I, I thought at the time. Uh, but, you know, yeah, there's... I mean, without going into every silly detail, it's, I'm sure there's a lot of people that have the same song, but it, it covered the spectrum from A to Z. It For wasn't sure. just bud. It wasn't just drinking. It was, it was everything. Um, and, and, you know, but the one thing that finally, that finally anchored me down was opiates. And so, you know, as far as, you know, anxiety is concerned, I've always had kind of a, I've always had kind of a depression that required, you know, medication. I've always had kind of anxiety and, 
you know, one of the things that helped me with that was taking drugs. As sad as that is to say, as a coping mechanism. So now you're in your 20s, and this is where things spun for a crazy turn, huh? Well, when I got into my 20s, I was at a point where I had fallen in love. Um, I was playing music with a couple of close friends. I decided it was time to move out of the East Bay and move down to Southern California. So essentially, I... Moved down into Mission Beach with a couple of friends, and things started to get out of control at that point. Um, the first time that I ever really got into opiate medication, and this was at a time when Oxycontin was a really, really bad epidemic. Um, my close neighbor, he became a really good friend of mine, uh, Zach. He and his girlfriend, Sarah, had moved from Santa Cruz, and he was a smart dude. This is one of those guys that you could talk to about anything. It didn't matter what you were going to say. Hmm. And he had an answer for everything. He, um, he had found a doctor. He loved to get, you know, into a different state of mind. And he had introduced me to Oxycontin. And I remember this was before it really became epidemic. He had just come into my small little beach bungalow shack right across the boardwalk and dumped out a pill uh, bottle with a mag light, and he just started crushing them up. Wow. And at the time, I didn't know what it was. But that progressed because it was so readily available. It was so easy for him to get. And so uh, at first, it was all fun. You know, uh, take it a couple times a week, uh, party, go out on the beach, throw some horseshoes, um, get some sun, jump in the ocean, and what had happened with Zach, unfortunately, was he, I mean, he ultimately passed away because, because of this. But, you know, he introduced me to a whole new world that I didn't even know existed. Um, he had been down there much longer than I had. And I remember after his prescription ran out, you know, everybody else still wanted to have fun. And so what we had done was we, had, we would start going to Mexico every single day. And it was actually, it's scary how easy it was at the time. This was when you didn't need a passport to cross. Mm. Um, and we would go across the border, literally walk across the border, and we'd go sit down at this little casino, you know, just in the middle of this courtyard. So you're passing 100 uh, people wanting to sell you chiclets. Yeah. And, and you sit down at a little restaurant. You order two tacos and a Corona. And the waiter who's going to deliver you your your lunch, your fiesta, also asks you, well, what do you really want? Oh, wow. What are you here for? Oh, shit. And he would run around the corner, go to a little pharmacia, and bring back a napkin full of pills. At that time, they were seven bucks a piece for the highest dose medication they offered at the time. Uh, so, so what had happened was over time, I had started to build a tolerance. So day one, uh, let's say you're at 10 milligrams, Six months later, you're, you're at 40. Six months later, you're at 80. I mean, it's actually, it was even worse than that. But um, one of the things that kind of affected me was Zach went into this dark turn where he, he, went, he was rushed to the emergency room in an ambulance, and 
he was released. He had overdosed on, on Oxycontin and Xanax at the same time. Um, he was released. The following day, um, he did the same thing. Ambulance came back to pick him up. His parents came down and did everything that they could to keep him in the emergency room in the hospital, but he's a grown man. He checked himself out again, and that, that next day, uh, his girlfriend woke up, and he was, he was passed away next to him. He had overdosed again. And so when that happened, pretty much everyone in the compound, that's what we called the, the little neighborhood we lived in. The compound. Yeah, it was just a, it, 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 was, it was a great time until it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you would think that, that an experience like that would affect you in a way that makes you ch- make some different life decisions. The problem was at the time I was so dependent on the medication that I didn't really have a choice. So because he had shown me, you know, where to go, who to talk to, what to get, I just continued to go down there for years Damn. and years and years. Um, and it, and at that point, you find yourself in a situation where when you wake up in the morning, when you go to sleep at night, three hours later after you, after you take this medication, um, if you don't continue to take it, the only way I can describe it is you, you feel like you have the flu. It's the fastest flu you're going to get. Wow. Um, and so at that point, you become so dependent on it that everything else kind of falls away. Your priorities have changed. Um, you know, the things that, the things looking back on it now, if Zach could have made it through that, he'd be a friend that I would love to have nowadays. Wow. Um, but, but also, you know, I should have seen it coming. The last few days that he was alive, he started giving his things away. He started handing out things to people. I think he had, he kind of checked out. Did he know it? Did he know what was coming? <sighs> well, he, he, uh, I don't, I, I don't really know what the root cause of it was. His, uh, his, the girl in his life, Sarah, she was an amazing person. She was always attentive to him. They had great conversation together. They laughed all the time. You could tell they were in love. Um, I'm not really sure what happened. I feel like looking back on it, it was, it was something that he was out of his control, you know. Mm. Um, but, I mean, essentially... Uh, he was, he was, it was a fork in the road for me, but just not a big enough one, you know, because it wasn't enough to, to transition things. And essentially kind of where it went from there was, um, it became such an epidemic in the, in the early two thousands that the cost of this medication on the street went through the roof. Mm -hmm. So what once took me, you know, 12 bucks a day to get through ended up being 50 bucks a day and ended up being a dollar bill. You know, it ended up being Ben Franklin on the counter, um, and so on and so forth. So it it was, it it was, uh, it just, it just got out of control really fast and kind of to summarize, I mean, it got to the point where I really couldn't hide it anymore. You know, I still had a job. I still had a job. I still, I still was making money. I wasn't stealing. I wasn't uh, doing anything to harm anybody else. And and at the time, my family really didn't know the extent of it. Um, they 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 had no idea 
what was going on, out of sight, out of mind. I was able to keep composure at family events. And it, it just, I think part of that actually kind of hurt the situation, the fact that I was able to, to afford to continue doing this. So you maintained a job. You, you kept yourself clean on all other fronts in terms of like the kind of person that you were. You were, you were honest. You, were, you made an, uh, an honest living. You didn't steal to make stuff happen. You didn't hurt anybody in the process of buying this stuff. And, um, and yet your body depended so badly on the stuff that you had to continue on. Well, if you wake up, the first thing that happens is you need to take this medication. Mm. If you do not, you are guaranteed to have the flu within about 30 minutes to an hour. So all the other priorities in your life fly by the wayside. Um, you know, eventually it, it did get to a scenario where uh, everyone in the compound was either uh, their lives were falling apart or they had passed. I mean, I only use Zach as one example, but I, I could I could go down that path. But there were several people that didn't make it. Um, I ended up moving out to Hamul and living in the garage with my sister, all the while keeping composure, keeping things going. And what had happened was her husband and and uh, and and her, who I love endlessly, they are the the best people ever. They called, they made a phone call to my mother and father and said, listen, there's a problem. We need to see if we can intervene on this. And um, when things got really bad, I finally broke down and told my parents, yeah, yeah, I can't, I can't keep on going on like this. What was the conversation like? Did they, did they, did they rush to your sister's house right away? Um, did they talk to you on the phone when your brother-in-law was calling him? What was the situation and how this conversation came about? Well, I think everybody kind of knew what was going on. They knew that I wasn't myself. They could see that my green eyes had turned kind of blank. And um, I remember my mother calling me, and she was in tears, and she just she wanted to do anything that she could to help me. She, and initially I denied the extent of it because I didn't want to hurt her. I wanted mm -hmm. to kind of protect her. Um, but then finally I eventually called back and I said, you know what? I need help. You're right. This isn't the life that I intended to live. This isn't who I am. And um, they came down, packed up all my stuff and drove me back to the Bay Area and uh, put me in my first rehab. Hmm. That was an interesting experience. I remember going to, I think it was the Summit Medical Center in Oakland, and driving in there and watching my dad pull out his checkbook so that his kid, who's hopped up on medication, could try to save his life. And I remember it affected me so much because I was like, this is the first time um, that I really felt like, wow, all of these actions that I've been taking are affecting everyone around me, not just me. You know, I felt like because I wasn't stealing, because I was providing for myself, that that was all that was required. But in reality, emotionally, the things that it does to the people around you, to my family, to the people that actually love you, to see them break down the way that they did, um, it, it, had, it had a real deep effect on me. 
I spent I spent a couple of weeks in this rehab because honestly, you know, insurance they don't care. Hmm. They really don't care. My dad had to just hand over cash that wow. he probably could have used elsewhere. Let's put it that way. Wow. They were never a wealthy family. Um, I got out and I started going to NA meetings, AA meetings. Had a sponsor. And the sponsor turned out to be um, a bad turn again. I lasted about six months and started using again. Explain to me a sponsor. A sponsor is somebody who is supposedly has uh, a certain amount of clean time, clean living. Okay. No drugs, no alcohol. Um, Have they been ever in that scenario? They've completed a 12-step program. Um, This particular person... Um, it's actually terrible what he did when I, you know, in retrospect, I remember being at one of these meetings and essentially it's a group of people that are all struggling. Mm -hmm. Some people have one day without using some people have, you know, 30 years. Um, he was supposed to be a pillar of the community, this great guy. Um, you know, everybody in town knew him. But in reality, I'm sitting, uh, sitting at a meeting, get some coffee, and he walks up and he starts shaking his pocket, and I can hear pills jingling around in his pocket. Wow. And so it took about four seconds for us to leave the meeting and go back to his house and start playing guitar, and, you know, oh, and I was right back on track. Wow. Um, after that, I think I was out for another three years before I went back into another hospital. Um, I mean, in total, we're looking at five trips, um, four ambulance rides, three friends have passed. Um, the thing about NA and AA meetings is, you know, I, I, did, I did follow the program, the 12 Steps, Shoot, I haven't made it past the fifth, but it was a good experience because I got to hear everybody's story. You know, a lot of people that are in those meetings will tell you that they use drugs because uh, they had uh, been abused as a child or uh, something really bad happened to a family member Mm -hmm. because they had a terrible uh, upbringing you know, yeah. or poverty, and they they had to do things. Anything you can possibly imagine will will come up in those meetings. And I always felt like kind of an outcast. I felt like I was the one person in there when I would tell my story that had an amazing family. Wow. I had an amazing family. Okay. I had no excuse. Um, I didn't have a terrible story about... Uh, what happened to me or, or uh, you know, a really bad situation, a violent family, a violent upbringing. My story was much different. I loved, loved to get high, you know. It was something that, it was something that uh, I didn't feel like it was affecting my personal life. It's something I actually thought enhanced my relationships at the time. And... It was something that made me feel like I was part of something, part of a group. You explained when you were younger, when we go back to the 96, 97, like that one instance where you had that experience at the party, right? The 
your explanation of that was that it it made you feel like you were a part of a circle. And you're kind of alluding to that again in this part of your life. I'm going to bring you to that moment where, where the sponsor's pocket started to jingle and you heard the pills. What did that strike in you emotionally when you heard those pills and knew what was available? Well, it's, I was really let down after I had gotten back to the house and took them because the truth is I was on a mission to change my life. So you knew you were going to make this happen, this change. Yeah. The, and- problem, the, the problem is it's so powerful, you can't even explain it. Everybody's done something they know they shouldn't do. It's inevitable. Mm. Everybody's had that extra slice of pizza at 1130 at night. Mm. Um, The issue is with medication like this, I mean, at the time, it's essentially uh, synthetic heroin. And it's probably, um, as far as withdrawal symptoms are concerned, uh, the worst. But on the flip side, the high, for me at least, was was as good as it gets. Um, and, and, and it kind of, what, what happens to your mind is, you know, people talk about runner's high or, you know, getting out there and smelling the fresh air on a hike and the way that you feel energetic afterwards. That's your mind producing natural endorphins. And that's how you feel uh, refreshed. That's how you feel like you're ready for the day. What happens with opiates is uh, it tells your brain, we don't need any more endorphins, stop producing them. So six, six months out of, out of rehab wasn't enough time for me. Mm. It wasn't enough time. I was still extremely vulnerable. So um, now it was disappointing. I remember feeling so ashamed because I, I, I have always paid my debts and I remember I remember thinking to myself, it broke my heart to see my dad bust out that green back and, and get me through this. They wanted, they wanted to save me. And, I've, and I felt so let down. I remember the drive home thinking, this is, this is impossible that I'm going to let this happen. But it continued for another three years regardless, all the same. Um, essentially, with, with the change in times, and it happened pretty quickly, um, with the with the cost of things, um, you know, it eventually turned into much much harder drugs than just pharmaceuticals. Wow! All right. Yeah. Um, you know, you you. I, I feel like I should tell you more a little bit more about the meetings, only because I remember what it felt like to be a speaker. Essentially, you walk into these meetings, you sit in a circle, everybody's got their coffee, and they're smoking 10,000 cigarettes. I'm sure. And I remember going up there for the first few times, and I would share my story. And the story was maybe chapter one at the time. Well, you know, it's, it, it was a long time going. Um, but those people... I always felt, I always looked at them and I, and I, my heart went out to them because I always wondered like, they're just like me, no matter where they're coming from, no matter where their situation was. I remember thinking, I wonder how deeply they've been in love. I wonder how much it hurts to be them. And I always, I always was compassionate for other people, um, which is why I, and I think at the time I was a little, 
I, I was a little vulnerable and I trusted this particular individual too much. Um, you know, and it cost me, it cost me a lot. I think looking back, if I could have gotten a different sponsor, shoot, I might've, it might've changed my life a long time ago. Um, but that being said, you know, on the, on the other side of things, I wouldn't have it any other way. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade my experiences because they, they have, they have everything to do with who I am now. So I'm, I'm trying to catch up to where we, we are now. You gave me a little bit of, you wanted, you wanted to share a little bit more about the AA and NA meetings, right? And I guess, where, where do you go from here? Now you said that you got even deeper. It got worse as far as what addictions you Yeah, it you got had. worse. Um, I mean, it got worse in the sense that I kept on getting better jobs, I kept on making more money, and I kept on being able to disguise my life better. So um, the person that I was to everybody else in my life, I, I was actually really good at hiding the, the truth behind it all. Um, it affected relationships that I was in, um, the women in my life, the people that I decided to choose to spend my time with. And essentially, it, it, it came to a scenario where <clears throat> the government had started to really break down on your access to medications. Uh, they broke down on pharmaceutical companies. A lot of kids were dying. It was all, it was, it was a big, it was a big catastrophe. And uh, the thing is, at some point, you have to be able to function in life in order to hide this. Remember the first time I realized, shoot, I can't afford to be sick if I can't get these pills. So what am I going to do? Well, I turned to the methadone clinic. The methadone clinic, if you have a job, it's a bad situation hmm. because you got to pay about $300 a month. And to give you an idea of what it feels like to go to the methadone clinic, you wake up every morning and you drive yourself there, if you have a vehicle, I suppose, and you wait in line with uh, a lot of people that are hurting, physically, aching, throwing up, you know, uh, sick. And you stand in line and you go to a nursing station and they give you a, a dose, which is a liquid methadone. And then, uh, and then you leave. You come back again and you do it the next day. Now, the reason that I did that was because... It was, it was to subsidize what, it was basically to, 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 to ensure that I wouldn't get sick. It didn't mean I stopped using. Oh, wow. It was basically, if you take the methadone as prescribed, mm -hmm. then it, it'll keep you from getting sick. And that the idea is they start you off with a specific dosage, and then it, they slowly decrease that dosage until you're no longer dependent on the medication. Understood. Um, the problem with my situation was I had enough money to purchase the methadone every day, but I also had enough money to purchase the drugs every day. So now, um, by the time it got hard to find the street drugs, you know, and as the, and as the circle of people that I was around changed, um, you know, it's sad to say, but I actually ended up, you know, buying the worst of the worst opiates, street heroin, and 
things got a little scary. I remember thinking there was a time in my life, even for years when I was thinking, there's no way that I will ever put a needle in my body. Just absolutely not. I remember thinking, those people are drug addicts. Hmm. Those people are going to be homeless. Those people don't have a future. And I allowed that to happen to myself. And it was, it was a pretty shameful moment. And it was a pretty shameful moment. In the moment, was it shameful? Well, not, not after, not after you, you, finish, you finish what you have to do, no. Um, I think what was shameful about it is that I started having to hide my arms. I started having to wear long sleeve shirts in the summertime. I started having to wear socks in the summertime when I'm out and about instead of flip-flops. Wow. You know, um, it did a lot of damage to my body that at the time was really embarrassing. But you can't show up to a wedding looking like that, you know. So, um, I mean, it's, it's sad that it, that it took that deep turn. And, of course, at that point, you're all in. You know, at that point, um, you're at a stage where the difference between pharmaceutical opiates and street is you know what you're getting every time you buy pharmaceutical. Mm-hmm. It's weighed out, it's measured, it's, it's science. With street medication, God knows what they're going to put in it. God knows what's going to happen. Um, there's been several times that I've had to get in the back of an ambulance. There's been several times when I've had to call for an ambulance. It's the scariest thing ever, getting loaded up, um, waking up with charcoal in your throat, basically. No way. Um, there's a medication called Narcan, which they administer to you in the ambulance. And what it essentially does is, is stop the digestion of any medication that you've taken. So, you know, I don't, I don't know how deeply and darkly I want to go into that, but because I haven't thought about it in so long. Yeah. All right. But, Fair. but, but essentially to, to, uh, to kind of summarize it, it gets out of control pretty fast. You know, it gets out of control pretty fast. So you mentioned five times going to rehab until it was like the end of that life. Um, and I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm fast forwarding the tape too quickly, but you tell me where you want to, you know, begin the process of ending this old lifestyle. But what made that change? What was it in your mind, emotionally, what conversations did you have to finally come to the conclusion of like, dude, this needs to stop? Well, I think deep, I think deep down my core values never changed. Um, I always thought, you know, I'd look and see people around me, my friends that weren't a part of this. They were getting married. They were having families. Um, they didn't want to be around me, not because I wasn't a good person, just because they knew that when they see Jeff, it's going to be, you know, Jeff out of, you know, out of control. Um, I wasn't the same person. And, and I think what ultimately made me want to change was I still wanted to have that life that I did as a kid, but I had gotten out of my lane. I had gotten so far out of path. Um, and the last time that I went to the hospital... Um, I, it was so, it was, it had gotten so far out of control that 
they had to pull they had to put me in an ambulance because they were only treating me for the opiate medication mm-hmm. but at the same time i was addicted to xanax and i started to have delusions and I, you could say that they they picked me up in an ambulance and took me to a mental hospital so i ended up there for for about a week and a half i remember my mom drove out to vegas because she was my emergency contact. And I remember looking at her and just thinking, uh, I'm done. I'm yeah. absolutely done. This is, this is ridiculous. I, I, have, um, I have a future that I want, but I can't get there from here. Um, uh, I remember calling work and saying, I no longer live in the East Bay area. I live in Southern California now. And whatever that consequence is, I'm willing to take it. I'm going to start my life over. Uh, and I think ultimately what, what helped was getting away from the old cell phone numbers, not having drug dealers so close to me, not being in that same environment. Um, you know, I've, I've bounced back and forth from, from uh, the East Bay to Southern California several times in my life, but I... But when this final event occurred, I was gone for years. When I came back down here, this was 2014, uh, I didn't know anybody. And quite frankly, I didn't want to know anybody. I was so embraced with, with making a change, and, and I was so tired of, of running, so tired of that lifestyle, that I was, able, I, was, I was able to overcome it. It took a long time. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I, I still look back and I talk about the, those days romantically because it really was a love of my life. But a lot of things, I lost a lot of relationships. I lost opportunities to have a family like everybody else. I mean, um, I, 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 I had opportunities, but because of the situation that I was that I was in because of the situation that the people that I was spending my time with were in, I, I lost those. And, you know, I, I realized one day, I do want to have a family. I do want to have a better life. I want to be around for my family. I want to I grow the relationships that I have. And when I came back from, from Vegas, I spent a lot of time doing that. I, I ended up spending a lot of time with my brother who I was not estranged from for years, but we just, we lived a different life. I mean, my brothers never smoked a cigarette, okay? So when I started spending my time with him and his family, fell in love with his kids, you know Cassie's just, she's the apple in my eye. I um, do. Those, those people, you know, meeting you and G, and meeting Dave and, Ch- and Chelsea, you know, the, that was something that really helped pull me out of, you know, pull me out of my prior thinking in life. The, the fact that I was able to embrace these new relationships, embrace this, this, and build this friendship with my brother who, I mean, we grew up in the same room, but it had been 20 years past. Um, we kind of, you know, had weren't able to to have that relationship but spending time with him spending time with my parents it 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 gave me enough distance in between so that I was able to finally get it out of my mind I started 
I started getting back into music. I started getting back into into writing. I started getting back into focusing on friendships and healthy friendships, healthy relationships. Um, you know, it's it's hard to to believe looking back, but it uh, it couldn't have happened any other way. It's so interesting that the the common theme throughout your entire story up until this very moment where you're sitting in front of me is relationships that you have with people have always been the common thread. And you said it best in the way that you had articulated it. It's the healthy relationship versus the relationships that you developed in that other circle. And they're still valuable to you. And and what's fascinating to me is the way that you said it, that you romantically think and speak about those times still, but know and have been able to delineate the difference between what it was and what it can be and why it's so important for you to do this differently now, approach life, face it differently with a different group of people. Um, I, I, I'm, I know that there's so many other events that kind of are a part of those times in Mexico and the people that you had spent with in Antioch. Um, knowing the depth and the, the, the loss and all of those things that you had to endure, depression, failure, loneliness, fear, anxiety, these are all themes that everybody struggles with. And of course, some situations are far more severe than others. Um, and it's all relative, right? But based on your experiences, how would you advise somebody in need of direction to get out of the rut that you've experienced? Well, I think a simple way is to just use common sense. I mean, it it occurred to me one day that it's not a party if it happens every night. You know, it's, if you, if you continue down the path that is, you know, it's, it's blocking your progression in life. If you still have any sense of who you want to become, then you, you have to make a change. I swear the hardest thing in my life has been to change. Um, I've always considered, and I think that people closest to me will agree, that I have a great heart. That's one of my favorite things about me. I have to agree 100% with those people. <laughs> don't know who they are, but... Um. I, I, <laughs> I have um, maintained relationships with people that you wouldn't believe after some of the trenches we've been through. But I've never wanted to hurt anybody. I've never even been in a fight. Um, but the ultimate thing is, yeah, people, you know, it's funny. What I've been through is nothing different than what anybody else struggles with, whether it's eating, you know, whether it's gambling, whether it's, you know, uh, I'm not even going to go down that path. You get it. Whether it's depression. The thing with depression, I think, um, for me was I, I've, I had to do the work. I had to go see psychiatrists. I still see them today. I still take medication. It's all non-controlled substances, but it helped, it helped me balance and bring my, it bring my central life back into the picture. Um, you know, going through these things, you feel like, you feel like it's hopeless. You feel like it's absolutely hopeless. I will tell you that five, six, seven, eight years ago, there is no way that I ever thought Jeff would be where he's at today because, you know, to put it lightly, 
I have an amazing life. I'm not a wealthy guy. I don't have um, I don't have much, but what I have, I share with everybody that I love. And I'm I, I I'm not driven by things that I I think, and it's 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 no it's no foul on anybody for having different drives than me in life. But I have enough. You know, there's goals that I have that I will achieve, but. Um, you know, reflecting back on where I was to, to who I am now today. Oh man, I can't believe, I can't believe I made it out. You know, I could spend hours telling you stories specifically about this, that, and the other, but you know, the cliff notes version of it is I, I, I can't believe I made it out alive. Um, especially seeing all the shrapnel around me, all the people that, that didn't make it out. Um, all the people that I know today that are still struggling and still call me and I still counsel them as if I am their sponsor. Um, and to be honest with you, even it's, it's not, it's not something that I like to do because I prefer, I'm not, I don't want to forget because the mistakes that we make in life, they, they shouldn't be forgotten. They should mean something. They should be they should be something that you hold dear and realize, wow, I have a lot to be grateful for now because of those. Because I'll tell you, I mean, if I never got into this stuff, uh, who knows? I might be, um, you know, I, I'd be probably a completely different person. Um, but it, but it essentially, I, I, I don't know, I don't know the, the path that I would have been on, but I love the road I've taken, you know, nowadays, um, yeah, the, the common goal that I've always had, which is the easiest one to achieve when you have a family like I have, is just that. I love, my, my favorite thing to do is to spend time with my parents and my brother and my sisters. I love to laugh, love to tell jokes. I love being the funniest guy in the room, which is easy. <laughs> or not. That in and itself just made me laugh because it's so damn true about it. Oh, you. man. <laughs> well, well, wait until I start throwing out profanity. That's where I'm real good. I use it as nouns, adjectives, verbs, everything. That's when I get, that's what I get on a path. You're but, a wordsmith, bro. Hey. <laughs> man, it sounds like you're incredibly proud of who you are, bro. I am. Um, I mean, I never thought in the world I, I would own a house. I never thought in the world I'd own a vehicle. I have an amazing job. Um, I have an amazing group of people that I work with every day. They inspire me. They, they drive me to be better. I never want to stop learning. You know, I love to watch documentaries. I love to, to listen to people tell me stories about their lives. Um, I find myself going to, you know, the local pub and, and making several friends in just a few minutes. I love having conversation. You know, as much as I talk, I can listen, you know, believe it or not. Um, you know, another cool thing that I never really thought would happen is uh, I've, I've actually fallen in love again. Um, I've got a beautiful woman in my life. And it's, it's incredible because for years my brain was so shut down from the abuse and the things that I had done to it. I didn't think I'd ever get back. Yeah. Um, but, but she has, she has changed my life in a way. I already thought things were great. I already thought things were great. I, I 
dug myself out of this ridiculous bombshell of a hole. And now all of a sudden I have this beautiful, most amazing, caring, loving person in my life. And all she's done is inspire me to keep going. And she's brought this, this light back into my life that I swear I, I spent years thinking I would never find again, ever. Um, and she'll be moving in soon. Um, hey. And we're gonna we're going to uh, we're gonna keep on keeping on. So, yeah, it's uh, I got I got nothing but things to be grateful for, man. You I'm know? happy for you. That's incredible. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, I hate to bring it back to, you know, 20 years ago, Jeff, but you, you know, here you and I are in our late thirties. And if you think about the whole span of any human being's life, they're living to easily 70, 80, 90 years old now. So if you really look at the grand scope of things, we're not even at the halfway mark of our life. Right. That's fucking crazy, isn't it? It is, man. Yeah. I know. I know, um, but there's a lot of miles on this pickup, yeah. <laughs> man. There's a lot of miles on this pickup, no but you're about right. It, man. You're no right. doubt about it. A couple of wheels needed to be changed out a few times. I, know, I get right? it. Yeah. Um, but if you were to rewind the tape, knowing who Jeff is now, what his values have stood for throughout those years, all those decades, and what you've learned from them, what would you tell 1999 Jeff? Well, if I could take back if I could take myself back to 1999, I would definitely, um, I would definitely knock myself down and, and talk some sense into myself. Uh, I mean, looking back on it, I wouldn't mind having the seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars back that I burned. Damn. I wouldn't mind having those miles back. Um, and there's so many things that I could have done better with my life so many things I could have done uh, better with my time it's at this point it's you know it is what it is it happened but I would definitely say you know if I if I had a son who was doing what I was doing it's hard it would be heartbreaking to me to see him living his life the way that he was uh, because because there's so many other things out there for for you to spend spend those hours of the day on, um, I, I would definitely I would definitely have focused more on uh, advancing, you know, my knowledge. Uh, I'd go to school. I would have uh, I would have probably saved a few relationships and be in a completely different place in my life. I, I don't know. Um, I know that if I was growing up nowadays, um, I would never, I would never touch the stuff. I would never have touched the stuff, um, you know. And it's and it's kind of a, it's kind of a, you know, vortex for me because while I appreciate who it made me, and I and I truly believe every mistake that we make in life is 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 a piece of how you become. I wouldn't mind seeing how things would have turned out. I would have saved myself a lot of trouble if I would have just grown up a long time ago. Respect to the fact that you even accept how terrible those things may have been and still be who you are, like like the incredible, proud, loving, family-oriented, 
and in love individual that you are. Love being in love. You do. You do, man. Um, But I love being around you, too. Um, I'm proud to have you as a friend. I'm glad that we met in 2014. Is that how long we know each other? Uh, well, we met in September of 2015. Okay. Yeah. You, I met you the first day I came back out of the, out of the hen house, man. You were sitting in my brother's backyard. Um, my parents were there. My mom would had a little bit of wine to drink and yeah, it's, it's been a while, man. It feels like, it feels like, uh, it, it hasn't been that long. No, it's zoomed for sure. Yeah, no. Yeah. Um, sober Jeff, clean Jeff. I, I will, I'll say drug free Jeff. Sure. He's gotten, he's, he's got some, some days under him. So, um, yeah, I'm, I am so grateful for your friendship. Thanks, man. Um, one last question. Why was it so important for you to share this story with me and in this platform? Well, I think that I think that a lot of people have misconceptions about uh, people that use drugs. I think that you probably find that it's more people than than you expect. I think that people that are that are living next door to you, that are living under the same roof with you, are struggling from things like this, and some people are pretty good at hiding it. Um, and I think if anybody were to to come to you and say that they're having an issue, uh, I would I would definitely like to think that at least my story could be a little bit inspirational um, for somebody who's even keeping the, themselves a secret um, because you can get out of it. You can get out of it. Um, it's it's there's no formula for it. Everybody has to find their own road, but. I think there's nothing unique about Jeff. Um, I just think that I'm very proud of where I be, you know, where where I have have gotten myself in life from where I was. Um, and I I think that if if people are out there and they're dealing with things, insecurities, regardless whatever it is, um, if you keep on going, no matter how hard it gets. Um, there's definitely, there's definitely um, a day that will come where the sun will shine again. It's just, it's just that simple. It, it does happen. I appreciate that, Jeff. Um, again, incredible how vulnerable and open and sincere you were about this whole thing. So thanks for your time. Thanks for being um, a resource, really, for those who could be going through, whether it is a substance abuse thing or a depression thing. Um, you were an example of how you can actually pull through. Um, and it means a lot to me that you were able to share that with me on this platform um, under these lights and uh, when the microphone's hot, bro. Yeah, I'm getting a suntan. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, man. All right. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you. Setting Stages audience, thank you once again for taking the time to listen to this very important episode. And um, please, for those of you who are going through or know someone who might be going through this, I encourage you so much to share this episode. But even further, go find treatment, please. Um, I did just a little bit of research before putting this out um, on air and everything, and I found that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services um, offers treatments. Um, treatment resources. Uh, It's called the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or 
SAMHSA.gov, SAMHSA.gov, and there are tons of resources on there, anything from uh, substance use treatment locators, um, suicide prevention lifelines, all kinds of different um, uh, programs that can assist those of you in need. And uh, again, this is perhaps the most important episode I've ever recorded, and there's a reason why I shared it, and it's not, it's not, it's not anything to be taken lightly, and, and you can very much sense that there is a way out, there is hope, and there is a, a, a an option, and I just encourage you so much to please seek treatment. Thank you again so much for listening to this, and I hope that it makes an impact in um, in a positive way for those of you who have listened, and for those of you who uh, have have somebody that can benefit from it. Please share it with them as well. Thank you again for your time. As always, go about your day with purpose, passion, and positivity. Let's go.